Hello everybody, my name is Max Cassidy and this is Sorn in the 21st. Today we're going to be continuing our conversation on the good life. What does it mean and how do we bring this about for ourselves? Today we're going to be joined by Matt Terrell. Now I'm not going to give the introduction of who he is or why we should listen to him now. We're going to get into that in the interview because I feel like he does a much better job of explaining than I could. Now, I know it's been a really long time since my last episode, and I apologize. So let's get right into the interview right away. Hey, Mr. Terrell, how are we doing today? Uh, doing very well. Thank you, Max. Glad to be here. Good. Good to hear it. Um, how, are, how are we doing health-wise and safety-wise amidst uh, the COVID virus? You know, doing very well. Um... Uh, our family has been very careful uh, with with everything because of uh, my elderly parents that we want to be able to be with and spend time with and help take care of. So, you know, we've been pretty rigorous about, you know, all of the social distancing and masks and wearing, you know, washing your hands every time you turn around, it feels like, and uh, been been able to do pretty well. Yeah, it's it's definitely a hassle, but you know, it's things that kind of make sense to do all the time. Yeah. Unfortunately, we need a virus to remind us. <laughs> so um, I think we can probably jump right in. Um, so when I was preparing for this, for this interview, I was trying to find a, a good way to describe what specifically you do and, and what, how you specifically practice law. And I tried to search it on the internet and I kind of came up empty. So so for for myself and for the audience, if you could give kind of an easy easy explanation of what specifically you do. Uh, in the broadest sense, I'm a trial lawyer. Um, I get cases ready for for trial on disputes uh, between you know different different parties and uh, take them either before a judge or and or a jury. Um, in my specialty areas, what I do primarily is property litigation, uh, where there's disputes. There's two, two general areas that I practice in. One is uh, when one landowner and maybe an easement holder, somebody has a right in the property to use it for like a pipeline or a transmission line or some other easement, an access easement. There, there were, are oftentimes disputes between the underlying property owner and the easement holder as to who can do what. And so uh, I litigate those, I protect easement rights, and then I also help uh, acquire properties through eminent domain, uh, which is you know the constitutional ability to take someone's property, but you have to pay just compensation. Yeah. And those are for public projects, things like transmission lines and pipelines and roads and things like that. So I typically represent, although sometimes I represent the landowners, I most often represent the condemning authority that's needing the property for, for the public project. Okay. So, so that would look like negotiating what constitutes a, a fair price and, and stuff like that. Correct. Uh, but in the negotiation process and when the negotiations break down and the two sides can't reach an agreement, then it has to go to court. And what what is the purpose of the jury or if it's a bench trial, the judge is to determine what is that proper value to pay the landowner. Sometimes a landowner 
understandably, they're not out looking to sell their property at that point. Yeah. Uh, and, and they don't want that project on there. So they sometimes, sometimes have a, a personal view of what the property's worth. And that's not what the law is about. The law is about what's its market value. And, and those two things are not always the same, the personal yeah. value and the market value. I, yes, I can imagine that could be a, a frustrating time for anybody. Yeah. So, um, so let, let me ask you, um, what specifically made you want to, to, do, to practice law and, and even this specific type of law? Or maybe it was kind of just what turned up, you know, this is what I'm good at and I kind of enjoy it. Or how did you kind of come to that? Yeah, two, two very different uh, answers uh, to those two questions. What made me want to practice law generally was in seventh grade, I had a clear calling that I felt God uh, was telling me this is, was going to be my ministry in life. This is, would, would be how I had the opportunity to reach people, help people. And as I practice law to also be a part of um, sharing the gospel, sharing what God has meant in my life and uh, being people's advocates, helping them in times of difficulty. Um, now as to what the specific area of practice, it's interesting. It took a, some turns. I, I originally, I got my undergrad degree. Uh, was always been real good with numbers and, and I thought I would be an accountant finance, uh, student and do transactional type law, um, mm -hmm. mergers and acquisitions and banking and different things like that. And when I was in law school, when I got my job at the law firm uh, that I worked at for a number of years, uh, the area that I was thinking I wanted to practice in was just not growing. There was a downturn in the economy and they gave me a, an offer to work with them. They were still were kind enough to hire me and said, we want you to do litigation for the first couple of years. And uh, so I said, yeah, I'd like a, job. So I took that. Um, and interestingly, at that point at Baylor, in Baylor Law School in your third year, it's got an intensive trial class that everyone has to take. And it's very difficult, very rigorous in your third year. And I actually was starting to really like that and didn't realize that I would. And so they gave me the offer, uh, told me that after a couple of years when the economy got back going, that they'd move me into the transactional world and would use me intermittently in there when they had need. So I did that and found over the first couple of years that I just really loved litigation. I loved the trial side. I loved the, the puzzle piece of it all and those things. And so and two and a half, three years in, they gave me an offer to move sections. And I said, you know, I appreciate it, but I'm, I'm really happy doing what I do right here. Yeah. So, so and, and then with regard to the eminent domain world, I grew up in a family of uh, my, my parents taught real estate classes. Um, my brother was in real estate, you know, just had a lot of real property type stuff in the family. And so I just, naturally, I think, gravitated toward that. It was familiar and, uh, and really enjoyed it. And so I've been doing that pretty much ever since. That's awesome. And that actually leads into our next question really well. Um, and it kind of goes to the, the public per perception of a lawyer. Um, you know, we have, we have the, the law and order, we have 
um, to kill a mockingbird. You know, we have all these things that, you know, the media has, has put up as the view of a, of a lawyer. And you're a trial lawyer, so you might relate to this even more. But um, where, where are some areas that, that maybe is accurate and maybe really inaccurate? Yeah, the, the, uh, the world's view of, of the lawyer and including the trial lawyer um, it is much more uh, glamorous than what it really is. You know, yeah. you're always seeing some big argument that wins the day and, and people are always in the courtroom. The reality is, is even when you're a trial lawyer, you're not in the courtroom very often. And most of your job, if you're, if you're really doing a good job for your client, um, is, is tedious, hard work, reading a whole bunch, uh, you know, really getting into and knowing the law and trying to understand the facts of the case as best you can to identify what, what really is there and what isn't and help your client navigate those things. There's a lot of counseling that goes into it. There's a lot of reading and investigation. And then uh, with, with what I do, I'm actually in the courtroom because of the eminent domain where we go to court a lot more than most. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's just not that glamorous. I mean, yeah. we, you know, we have hearings, no, no one, there's not a packed courtroom. No one's, you know, waiting to find out if the, if this property is going to be worth 10,000 an acre or 11,000 an acre. Nobody, <laughs> the, the only yeah. people that care are the landowner and, and my client. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's funny. Cause you never, you never think about that. I mean, you only see lawyers as, you know, they're yelling across, you know, you can't handle the truth kind of stuff. <laughs> so, um, so moving moving on to to more of more of the meat of of what we're, I think we're trying to get at, um, I think it'd be pretty reasonable to say that truth plays a a big role in in being a lawyer, and and in that practice. And we oftentimes think of truth as, um, you know, one plus one equals two. That is true, and some say it is, some say it isn't. Who knows? Um, but when you look at when you look at law and practicing law, it's a lot more complex. It's it's not as simple as one might think it it is. So how would you define truth in the legal perspective, and how, if at all, does that translate into your everyday life? Yeah. So um, from the from the practice of law, I think you could you know truth is a complex. Uh, thought. (laughs) You know, it it, it has different forms. It has different uh, meanings depending on the context of what you're talking about. But I think within the practice of law, um, truth is, and particularly with regard to a trial lawyer, um, truth is kind of divided into two things. Um, There's belief and there's fact. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you're trying to get to the truth of what the facts are and what occurs. But what you find, I think, is that um, uh, it's, truth is a, is a malleable uh, 
concept when it comes to the law and witnesses and trials. So a good, a good uh, example might be if you're looking at a contract and you've got two people in a dispute over a contract, yeah. you can look at the fact of what's written on the paper. That contract is a fact. Both people have signed it. What the words are there are the words that are there. You can't add or take away from them. So the contract is what it is. But each side may have very different beliefs about what the words in particular portions of that contract were intended to mean. Yeah. Um, and, and so the dispute comes along. And so frequently you have uh, people who are telling the truth based on what they believe from what they heard, what they saw, what they experienced, even though their belief may be wrong, they're not necessarily lying. Yeah. They, you, you do have people that lie under oath, but, but I find most witnesses uh, for my client and for, for the other side are usually telling the truth. And that is what they honestly believe and recall occurred and what was intended through the communications. You know, if you had a perfect world of perfect communication, you wouldn't have a lot of the disputes that you have in trial. Yeah. Uh, but truth is you're trying to find truth through both what the facts clearly say, Hey, these are the words that were written and here's how the law might be applied to it. But if the words aren't perfectly clear, then you're having to get to the truth through what the parties believed about the truth and what yeah. they're honestly communicating under oath that they, they have differences of opinion. And, and what's even more difficult sometimes is um, when you're talking about the belief side of truth, what people believe to be true, sometimes both of those beliefs, even though they're different, can be can both be true, uh, and, and so those that's an even more difficult nuance to figure out when you when you get there. A good example of that is trying to uh, you know if you look at the Gospels, mm -hmm. the you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all recorded certain incidents about about Jesus, and those those uh, recollections of certain events aren't exactly the same. Well, was one of them lying? Are those, you know, when you read yeah. that, is it, no, no, they're just different perspectives that each one was seeing the different, it, just because one said, he said, Jesus said this, and the other one says he said this and slightly different. It may have been, he said both things yeah. and they were different sentences. And, and so the, those are the types of nuances where you're always looking at, okay, what are the, what are the possible outcomes as I try to evaluate the facts that I see that are pretty much indisputable mm -hmm. vers versus the beliefs that I'm hearing from, my, from the witnesses? So, so it, it, it has a, a big impact. Truth is certainly a big part. And I think in practicing law, it's really important to, in order to understand those beliefs and to get a sense of what's, which ones are true, which ones may be inaccurate. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really important to gain the perspective of your client.
and try to understand also the perspective of the opponent or the or the other witness so that you under, try to get a feel for where they're coming from to see if that is shading, you know, their view of things or yeah. sometimes it's more accurate. Um, and, and so I, I think that perspective is really important to, to understanding uh, the truth, the belief of, of your client and the opposing side. Yeah. And that, that even sounds like, you know, that, that whole message is something that shouldn't just be for this podcast, but for the whole world, especially given this politically charged time where, I mean, that, that debate has been going on of what is truth for, for years now. And so I think that's such a, such a great add to that conversation of there's so much more, it's so much more complex and it doesn't just apply in law. It applies in politics and people's relationships and a a lot more than just law. So. Yeah. I think to the second part of that question, how does that affect my life? Um, I think, I think it, it causes me in my relationships to, and the, and the, the political world's a great example. You know, I have some strong political beliefs. I have mostly conservative beliefs, but when I hear someone on the other side of the fence, my initial reaction is is not to believe that they're acting in bad faith or they're idiots or they're, you know, because they disagree with me. It's immediately to try to say, okay, what's their perspective coming from? I think part of understanding people's perspective is having empathy for them yeah, uh, and, and trying to put yourself in their situation and, and understand where they're trying to get to. And I think, I think, that's lost in politics today. Oh, certainly. You know, no one is trying to understand the other side. And, and I think on the vast majority of issues, if, if people will take the time to have that empathy toward the other person's position, that's where you build bridges that allow for good compromise. Cause the reality is there's no politician out there to the extent and I don't want to be too uh, uh, down on politicians, but it seems like very few of them are statesmen anymore, you know, that they're much more about themselves. But to the extent, you know, they are there to, to solve problems, the, there's, there's very few politicians that want people to go hungry. <laughs> yeah. You know, the question is, is how to, what's the best way to get to a prosperous society, which is the way that helps the most people. And when you, when you come at it from an empathetic perspective, um, you start understanding that your goals probably are the same. And once you realize that your goals are very similar, then you can start building bridges on how to get to a, a, compromise solution that takes on a little bit of this person's viewpoint and a little bit of this one, you start getting creative. I I think um, that's how in in law, that's how we solve people's and get, get things settled as we, as we are empathetic and we listen to the other side Mm -hmm. and what their concerns are. Then we, we hear what they're trying to accomplish and we can communicate that to our client and help them understand that, Hey, guess what? You guys aren't as far apart as you think you've got some, you've built up some animosity and you've got 
real problems in communication, but you're, you're pretty close. If we do X, Y, and Z, you actually both can come out of this in a good situation. And, and it lets you come up with creative solutions, empathy and putting listening, you know, really hearing other people to hear their perspective and have, having empathy for them, I think is one of the, the, the strongest uh, character traits for good communication and problem solving. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting you say that because, I mean, you will never see a lawyer depicted with empathy in, in TV. And, and, and I, I mean, I had, never, I had never heard of that. You always assume one person is just trying to eat their lunch. And so, so to hear that, it's, you know, it's like, oh, okay, there's, there's a completely different dynamic to that. Um, I think it was Andrew Clavin who said 80% of people agree on 80% of things. And I think it's very true. Um, I think we really do agree on most things. We're just really bad at communicating that. Yeah. Um, so next, what, what values, and, and this kind of goes in, into truth and empathy, but what values do you hold as an individual that you believe give you more of a leg up in both life and the practice of law? So when you say, when you say leg up, what, what do you mean by that? So when I say leg up, I'm thinking, you know, it's, it seems like there is a certain, how do I say this? There's, there's a certain perception of, of lawyers and right, wrong, or indifferent. It tends not to be good. You know, everyone's heard the, the, the joke about unethical lawyers um, and we see that, you know, and, and a lot of times we, we tend to only see, you know, unethical lawyers who succeed or unethical businessmen who succeed. And it's always the guy on top, you know, was kicking on everybody else to get up to the top. Um, and I think you would probably be a case where I, I, don't, I don't think you're kicking, kicking people down to make it to the top. I could be completely wrong. And you're an excellent, excellent uh, deceiver. But... Um, but you've obviously managed a significant degree of success. Um, and so we know it isn't from sabotaging others. So what would you say those, those values that, that enabled you to, um, to succeed? So um, there's, there's a number of them. Uh, the first value that I think is most important for a good lawyer uh, is one of service that they, they want to serve their clients. Well, they want to aid their clients. They want to, um, do the things that causes their client to trust them implicitly with whatever problem they're going through. And we are, um, advocates for them, helping them find ways to make their lives better. Mm -hmm. Um, within the, uh, profession itself, you, you do find lawyers that are, um, you know, they're, they're climbing on the heads of everybody trying to, you know, don't care who they step on or hurt to get to their end goal. But I would say those are the rare lawyers. They're, they're not the common lawyers. Um, but the ones that are, mostly the truly highly regarded excellent lawyers uh, 
-hmm. I do believe they are not only out to serve their clients well, ethically and morally, but they are also trying to better other people's in the profession's lives and careers. They're not trying to make them look foolish in front of a jury or, um, you know, I had a hearing just, just last week with, with opposing counsel and, um, he wanted to, because of COVID, his client wasn't there. He had an affidavit, which wouldn't have been appropriate yeah. uh, because the witness wasn't there to testify. And we argued with these commissioners who were doing the hearing. They were the judges. And, and I, and I argued um, that he shouldn't be allowed to get in that affidavit. It's not appropriate evidence. It's these are the rules of, of court and, uh, the commissioners had a couple questions about one of them said, yeah, we don't even know if, you know, if the client signed that. And, and I've worked with this attorney and, and I kind of broke in and I said, you know, I, I heard, I heard a question uh, about, you know, whether or not the, the client would have signed that affidavit. And I do want to assure you that I've had worked with opposing counsel uh, on, on a few matters and, you know, I think what you want to make the decision on is whether or not it's appropriate to have the affidavit uh, in front of you, not whether or not it was signed by the client, because I can, I can assure you that my, my opponent is, has integrity and he would not be representing to this court that he had a document signed by his client that was not signed by his client. Yeah, and, and and so you're not look you're you're looking to hopefully build each other up on the things that you know are important like that. You don't attack people's character or yeah. do those things. Um, and and I think when you when you practice that way, it does come back to benefit you in the long term. Um, and so you're not only looking to. Uh, do those things for your opponents where, where appropriate. I mean, you do have to represent your client to the best um, of your abilities, but you're also looking to help build other people's careers in your, in your firm that you work with. And, and you, you find when you do those things, as in most situations where you are helpful and kind and do good things for other people that usually creates environments for success for everyone, which makes everyone more successful together. You know, yeah. so it, it, having those good things, I, I, I think where you find people doing uh, practicing law in the manner that people will, will imagine or what they see on TV, it makes for great drama. Yeah. Uh, but those law firms don't exist very long because nobody wants to work with those yeah. partners who are constantly, causing pain, you know, or, or stepping on you or doing things like that. So people leave those types of law firms. And um, so I, I think that that uh, those general characteristics of working well with others is important for me. Um, I think with regard to every aspect of my practice, um, one of the basic values I've always had is that um, when you render your service, you do it with goodwill as to the Lord and not as to men. So it, in everything that I do, 
I always sit back and say, okay, how would I do this with excellence if I'm serving if the Lord? Because I am. I believe I was called to this ministry, uh, this career for this profession. And so the question is, how do I do everything with excellence? Which, which maybe, you know, sometimes I'll get accused of being a little bit of a workaholic. <laughs> um, but it's because I don't want to let something go halfway. I want to make sure it's done right. Uh, and, the, and not to please the client, but because I know that that's what's required of me uh, from, in a much higher manner. Um, you know, I guess um, another value, and this is actually my, my life verse, um, is Micah 6.8. And in Micah 6.8, kind of, you, the Bible says, what is, what is it that God requires of you, O man, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God? And I figure when if I can implement those three things in everything I'm doing, that when I'm acting towards others, that I'm doing it justly. I'm not trying to take advantage. I'm not lying. I'm not cheating. I'm, I'm doing things that are just toward others. And when I'm acting or responding to how others are acting toward me, well, the second requirement is to love mercy. Am I merciful and have a heart of empathy and, and try to understand and try of grace toward them? Do I love mercy when I'm, when I'm thinking of how I've been treated? And then finally, you know, just no matter how good you get as a lawyer, no matter how successful you are at any given thing, uh, you really don't have the ability to even breathe, but that God gives it to you. Mm-hmm. And, and so remembering at every moment that whatever success, whatever uh, material uh, things he's allowed you to gain in life, whatever difficulty you're going through, uh, these are all things that, that are God's gifts to us and um to handle it with humility as though I'm standing before a perfect righteous God and need his, his grace and mercy, you know, and that's, that I think is uh, the main things or values that affect how I view practicing law and living my life generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think uh, Soren Kierkegaard, he echoes a very similar sentiment and, and this is paraphrasing, but, but he basically says, and he was very critical of, of the church in, in the 18th century. He says, you know, you talk about how you, you love God and you worship God and you're going to do everything, you know, un, for God's name, but look at what you're doing. And, and he saw that disconnect. And that's, what, that's why he, he pressed so hard on the idea that, okay, well, you know, if you, if you truly believe in God and you truly love God, wouldn't you think, or at least be able to to deduce that that is you would act in a similar manner? Because I know, I know I'm not perfect, but if I had Jesus standing behind me, you know, and all and the all powerful God, and I could see it in my rearview mirror, I I can assure you, I would live with a with a certain a certain fear and a certain reverence that um 
that I can probably say I don't, I don't live with now. And so, but that is the case. Um, And so it's, I mean, it's an interesting contradiction that I know Kierkegaard struggled with and he, he wrote on that extensively and you, you are echoing the same sentiment. So Paul, Paul wrote, he said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling before God in Mm -hmm. Philippians. He said, you're before a holy, righteous God, work this out as you live and you walk and you do the things you do. Remember, do this with fear and trembling because though you're saved, you still answer to a righteous, perfect God who has said all of these things for us. You know I mean? Just go read the sermon on the mountain and ask yourself, am I doing these things? Am I living this way? You know? Yeah. One of Kierkegaard's most popular works is the book fear and trembling. So think, think there might be something connected there. (laughs) Um, so, so moving on to another, another existentialist and, uh, someone who, who talks about very similar things. I, I read a quote in my last interview from Dostoevsky and I, he just has so many. So I figured I'd, I'd give one to you and get your thoughts. But, um, he says, quote, nothing in this world is harder than speaking the truth and nothing is easier than flattering. And he says that in the book, Crime and Punishment. And, you know, you talked about doing what is right for other people. And you talked a lot about empathy. And a lot of times we, we confuse empathy with telling people what they want to hear, telling people that, oh, you know, you're a winner no matter what. You don't need to change anything about yourself. You're just perfect the way you are. Um, and I think and I believe a lot of other people in this, in this school of thought would, would disagree um, what are what are your thoughts on that? So certainly from the lawyers' world, the worst lawyers in the world are those that tell their clients what their clients want to hear. Uh-huh. Um, either are yes men or flattering them and you know trying to get their continued work and patronage by that type of process because your client needs you to tell them they've come to you because you have an expertise within the world of law that they don't understand. And so they need to know where their actions are not comporting to the law or where there's going to be a negative result if they do this, because this is what the law is. And if you can't tell them that truth, then you're not of much value to them. And that's true in the rest of life as well, where, where you have expertises. Now, what you've got to be careful with is uh, it's really, really important to speak the truth in love, as the Bible says in Ephesians. But yeah. sometimes, but you better be sure you understand what the truth is before you start trying to speak it in other people's lives. It's yeah. not always that simple. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's where empathy does play a role and and it's important that you speak truth but it's important that you know that what you're speaking is the truth before you say it and sometimes what's most important is to just walk alongside people Mm -hmm. just simply put your arm around them as they go through things and struggle and need help and you just pick up a shovel with them and help get them out of the ditch, you know? And then other times when they've run into the ditch 12 times, you know, maybe the 12th time when you're got the shovel with them, you say, you know, if you'd stop 
you know, steering this direction when you come through this curve. Yeah. I can promise you steering this other direction is going to have a better result in your life. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so there's times to speak the truth in love and there's times to just be quiet uh, so that you're, so that they know, I guess probably this is the key. Speaking the truth in love usually requires relationship mm-hmm. yeah. for it, for it to be heard. So you, part of speaking the truth means you have to be committed to loving people and knowing them in a relationship, which means you're serving people. Yeah. And when people see you serve them, they will listen to you. And even if they don't agree with you, they'll hear you out. And, and so absolutely. I think that speaking the truth in love is an absolute, uh, fundamental requirement for for Christians for for people to benefit other people's lives and the flattery um, there's some levels of flattery that are fine but usually it's it's something that is being done for um, when it truly is flattery it's something that's being done for your own benefit. You're not really concerned about complimenting that person. You're trying to manipulate yourself. Yeah. You're trying to put yourself in a, in a good position with them. Mm -hmm. So, and you, you gave us a free advice. We're not even going to charge anyone for this, but if you, if your lawyer starts telling you what you want to (laughs) hear, find another lawyer. (laughs) You might, you know, every once in a while, what you want to hear is the truth and it's good, but, but most often, most often it's not. Yeah. So, and this brings us to our final question and dare I say, possibly the most important, um, you know, the series is on, on the good life and how we obtain that. And we're exploring values, not, not ideas, not, not politics. Um, Cause I would argue, and I believe many others would say, that's not the way you have to kind of look at the, like, the value of someone. So, if you were to say what you believe is the path you took to achieving the good life, what are the key hurdles in achieving that? And what values helped you keep, uh, helped you keep centered on that goal? Yeah. So for anyone to understand my answer, um, they probably need to first understand how I define the good life. Yeah, because um, yeah, it is uh, very different um, for some people, and many would not want my view of a good life. Um, I, I am blessed at this stage of my life that, that there's some material things and life is, is gentler than it could be otherwise, you know, uh, with certain material possessions and things that can make parts of life easier, but it doesn't make it good. Yeah. It doesn't make it worth living. Um, service to others is something that I find has made my life good. It, it feels valuable. It's important, but at the fundamental uh, first initial step, I, I don't believe it's possible to have a good life, to experience the good life 
without first falling on God's grace and coming to know Christ as your Savior. Mm. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote in The Great Divorce, he, he, he wrote the, the concept that both heaven and hell will work, work themselves backwards in your life. That when you reach a certain point and you come face to face with your maker, and I believe with my whole heart, the only way to be in a right, right relationship with God is through Christ as your savior. Um, you will look back at your life. And if you have fallen on the grace of God through Christ and what he did for us on the cross, then every event that seemed and felt tragic in your life, as you look back at it, will take on the glorious hues of heaven because you will see it as the events that moved you along the path toward this eternal consequence. And vice versa, when you look back and you stand there and God is uh, telling you your name is not written in his book and you realize the gravity of your choices, that you, that you rejected Christ as your Savior, then you, everything about the good life that you had defined as you were experiencing it will take on the most hideous yeah. view to you, and it will not. It will be as though hell goes backwards into that life, and so you never will. For all eternity, you will realize you are not experiencing the good life. This was something that was a lie and was leading you to your doom. Yeah. And, and so fundamentally, I believe that to experience the good life, you have to first come to that point in, 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 your, uh, in your soul that you're right with God through Christ. And, and then after that, then really the good life is about um, experiencing every part of life as um, as God intended you to finding ways to incorporate his word into your actions. And, you know, so many people just refuse to really study the Bible. Mm -hmm. they, they, they read little parts of it and they hold those out for their life. They don't understand the breadth of what God is telling us from beginning to end about who he is and what his character is and the balance that is in, that is in the Bible from beginning to end. Um, and so they don't have a good way of, of really, uh, because they're not studying it, they don't have a good way of uh, putting that into their lives. But I think that those that give up their lives for a call that is something they find in God's word, that God's putting on their heart, um, I think those people find the good life. There's no, one of, the, one of the things for me, I had so many experiences of, of when I was, put myself through school uh, and survived on nothing. You know, my, my friends used to wonder why I couldn't go with them to a dollar movie. Well, because I didn't have a dollar. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and so as, as I watched God miraculously take care of needs, and I have story after story of God just doing amazing things. That, that life was financially hard, but incredibly good. I mean, I loved 
knowing that the God of all creation cared about my individual circumstance enough to reach down when I walked in faith and he would meet needs, you know, and that there's just, there's nothing better than knowing that the God of all creation loves you. <laughs> you know, yeah. that is a good life. Um, and the other things in, in life don't really uh, amount to much as, as um, uh, Jim Elliott. I don't know if you're familiar with Jim Elliott, the missionary he is one of my favorite quotes is from him. It says, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Yeah. And that's, that's really the good life, you know, to be about achieving the things that you cannot lose because they will go with you into eternity. And those things feel meaningful. They're what we were made for. And um, I, I think that, any other version of a good life is a cheap imitation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and we actually ex explore that concept quite a bit in the first uh, book series on, on works of love where Kierkegaard, you know, he, that is, you know, more in the context of love, but he says anything outside of focusing on Christ and having that other person there to support you with that goal in mind, he's like, if, if that's not what it is, then you, it's just a shadow, a, a vapor right. of what it's meant to be. Um, and it's interesting you say that. I mean, it's, it's the exact same concept. Mm -hmm. we, have to, we have to shift our paradigm to see something that's way bigger than what we're looking at. But it's really painful and nobody wants to do it. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great concept. Even, even um, you know, we all struggle in, in life with different things, but when, when, you, when you move to that, even your struggles and your really hard times become times of hope, become times of good. I mean, Romans says that, you know, when you go through trials, it creates perseverance, and perseverance creates character, and character creates hope. Yeah. And, and it's not a hope that disappoints because it's a hope in the Lord and he doesn't, his promises don't fail. And I, I kind of always want to hear the way here, here's my good life. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you my good life is where I can ride a roller coaster with my arms up. Okay. And that's a, that's a simple statement, but when I, I don't like heights yeah. and when I get on a roller coaster I can't stand it. And I, and the reason I can't stand it, it's not because of the moves or anything else in the roller coaster. It's because I don't know what the guy who's in charge of making sure the bolts are all tight and inspecting that roller coaster. I, I don't know what he was doing the night before. Was yeah. he out drinking? Did he care? Was he? Yeah. You know, and so my mind goes into these control things where I, I, I start to say, okay, what's around the next curve? You know, what's going to be as we go down that hill? But friends around me could just ride it without a care in the world, and they'd have their arms up and laughing and screaming and enjoying it. Well, life is like that. Life is a series of ups, downs, hard turns, uh, all kinds of different uh, scary-type feelings. Mm-hmm. 
But when you know that God is the ordainer of all things, that he's in charge and before the foundations of the world, he, nothing surprises him. When you realize that he's the one that's in charge of the roller coaster, it doesn't matter if you're going downhill or going on a scary turn or chugging uphill, you can enjoy the ride because you know you're secure. And, and that to me is the good life when I can, regardless of whether I know I'm secure and I know that I can enjoy these, this difficult term, this hard thing, because I know the author and the maker of all things. Thank you to Matt Terrell for taking the time and to you, the listener. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you next time.